Turn your Bible, please, to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Let's read the chapter again, please. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. God, who had sundry times and in diverse manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, and express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, set down on the right hand of the majesty on high being made so much better than angels, as yet by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For in which the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he said, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he said, Who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers flame of fire? But in the Son, he said, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doeth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels saith he at any time, Sit on my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they all are they not all ministering spirit? sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. Now to, to understand the lesson today, I want to, last week we talked about uh, that God has given expression to the sonship of Christ in the last couple of weeks. Today I want us to look at some examples of that, but to understand it you have to go back now to the temple worship and the the Images that they had in the temple are in temples, not necessarily the temple of Israel, but in temples of worship all around the pagan worship. They had images of angels and, and demons and all kinds of things around. And so it, a lot of people during that time was worshiping angels themselves. And what he's explaining here in the first chapter of Hebrews is that here is God's Son and He's greater than any angel. And verse 5 is a very important verse, but because I'd like for you to look at something. For under which the angels said in the end, Thou art my Son. And notice that word Son there is capitalized. This day have I begotten thee. That carries us back to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So, you've got to understand something. When you get saved, we are sons of God. 
But this verse makes it very plain that he's not talking about another man. He's talking about the begotten Son of God. And so it's very that you understand that. Notice every, when, when you're reading the Scriptures, notice these things and it'll give you insight into what's going on. Now, I want to talk about the examples of the Sonship of Christ in Scripture. Notice at least three things concerning the Sonship of Christ. Number one, His excellent name. In verse 4, in verse 5, verse 4 says, Since Christ has been made so much better than angels, He had by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Several angels are named in Scripture. There's Michael, whose name means who is like God. Then there's Gabriel, whose name means man of God. There is in Daniel chapter 8 verse 13 uh, and in verse Daniel 4 is mentioned another angel whose name is in the Hebrew Palamon which means the wonderful number. Then there is Satan who has given some 40 different names in the Bible all of which express the aspect of his terrible nature. But no angelic name can compare with the name Son, given by God the Father. Michael was glorious in might as a commander-in-chief of the armies of heaven. But in human armies, supreme power is sometimes usurped by the military commander-in-chief. But this cannot happen in heaven. Why? Because Michael's name is a guarantee against that. Because who is indeed like God. Gabriel was glorious in ministry because he was the herald angel. He was a bearer of messages from God to men. Sometimes in human affairs, the messenger can overshadow, overshadow the message, such as Mark Anthony when he appeared before Cleopatra with a message from Rome. Uh, Mark Anthony so dazzled Queen Cleopatra that she flung herself into his arms and all Egypt at his feet that find Arturus and all the might of Rome. <clears throat> Gabriel's name is a guarantee against that kind of thing because he is God's man and none others. Lucifer was glorious in majesty because he was anointed cherub. Ezekiel 28 verse 14. The highest of all created intelligence. He was son of the morning. Isaiah 14, verse 12. And just as one star differs from another in glory, so was Lucifer, a star of first magnitude set at to shine in solitary grandeur as a herald of the dawn. But the time came when he forgot that the rising sun eclipses the brightness star and he imaged himself as the greatest, glorious being of angelic beings. But Jesus Christ has a more excellent name than any angel being because he's not merely mighty like Michael. And Jesus is almighty. He's not just a messenger like Gabriel. He is himself the message. He is the word. He is not only a star like Lucifer. He is a son of righteousness. Now, what is this more excellent name Jesus has 
uh, he is son. Hebrew quotes Psalm 42, chapter 7. This psalm is a Mosaic psalm and deals with primary with Christ's second coming. Verse 7 says, has primary reference to Christ's resurrection. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, which refers to Christ's birth, says this, For unto which of the angels saith he at any time, Thou art my son, this day I will begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now that's quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. The rest reference to Second Samuel takes us to the cradle. The reference to Psalms 2 takes us to the empty tomb in Christ's second coming. Now, what does all this have to do with Christ's superiority over the angels as son? Everything. A ministering spirit, they were sent to attend to his birth. Uh, they were sent to attend to his resurrection. And one of these days, they would attend his return to Christ. Angels are Jesus' servants. They cannot be compared to him then. You can't take a, a servant and compare a servant to his master is what Hebrews chapter 1 is talking about. These angel beings, they worshipped back in those days, and even people do today, they can't be compared to the master. He's the master, and he's over all angels. Christ's earthly name, the Son, has an excellent name, and along with that, he has earthly fame. Scripture is now quoted to support the line of truth. Verse 6 and 7. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he said, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he said, Who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? The angels worshiped Jesus when he stepped off his throne to be born at Bethlehem. Uh, sing the songs of praise unto his name. And they will worship Jesus when he comes again to set his kingdom on earth. Now the point here is this. Angels worship Jesus because they are but creators, creatures, and Jesus is the Son. Worship is Jesus' right then. The Son is to be worshipped as God in worship. And that's what Hebrews brings out. And Jews, born again Jews, cannot possibly go back to the empty shadows of Judaism. Having acknowledged Jesus as God, the only possible thing then is to go on, is not to go back there. The angels, great as they are, are only ministering spirits, uh, where fu whose function is to rush to do Jesus' bidding. Whatever the Son says for them to do, they rush to do it. They're servants. There are messenger angels, such as came to Abraham and Jacob and Daniel and Zacharias and Elizabeth and Mary. There are ministering angels, such as came to Peter and Paul and little children to Jesus Christ, himself in the wilderness in Gadara, the Garden of Gethsemane, and who minister to Christians today. There are martial angels. They do battle against God's uh, human foes. And in all cases of Daniel, and such in, in, in Revelation, for instance. Now, there are managing angels who rule the elements, who function the connection with God's creation, and why function in God's court as uh, smiting men like Herod. But remember this, 
one and all are only angels. As far as the Son, as the infinite, from the infinite, and they worship Him. Now, the eternal flame. Going down to verse 8 now. Let's read on. But in the Son, He says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter righteous is a scepter of thy kingdom. Now you have to go back to Isaiah where we find that Satan, the highest angel in heaven, fell. The Son cannot fall. He's God in the flesh. And so the third example from Scripture refers to the Lord's eternal flame. An angel can fall. Jesus cannot fall from his position. The Lord Jesus is indeed Son of God, as demonstrated by his person, by his power, by his permanence, and by his position. There is the glory of Christ's person. Verse 8 and 9 again. But unto the Son he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, a scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. So number one, Christ's sovereignty is seen in the reference to the throne. Earthly thrones are symbols of power, but they, their fortune vary with time. But above and beyond all such thrones is the throne which Jesus sits on. He is sovereign indeed. Christ's deity is mentioned next. But unto the Son, he said, Thy throne, O God, emphasizing Jesus' deity. Jesus sits enthroned in the center of, of the rush and rustle of all the suns and stars and galaxies of space over all God, and God is blessed. Christ's dignity. His throne is forever and ever. Israel had two monarchies that ran side by side some two and a half centuries. The northern monarchy had 19 kings and nine dynasties, and all its kings were evil. The southern monarchy had only one dynasty, but at last it disintegrated too because of the wickedness and weakness of the kings. And besides this, the royal line came under a divine curse so that God had to go back to David and pick up a secondary line in order to bring his son into the world in the Messiah claim. Did you ever notice something that the, the, the book of Matthew starts off with the lineage of Christ? Of all the kings, God mentions one, David. Why? Because David was after God's own heart, the Bible says. All the rest of the kings were evil kings. And they wasn't that. So he had to go back there and pick up the righteous line of the kings. Which means simply this. Christ's dynasty, his throne is forever and ever. All these wicked kings, that both, both the northern and the southern parts of Israel kingdoms had was evil kings. And they fell. But not Jesus. It's forever. Then verse 8 again. But unto the Son he said, Thy throne, O God. Now notice something. Christ's authority. A scepter rises is a scepter of thy kingdom. Now the constitution under which he governs can be summed up in a single word. Righteousness. Uprightness. His kingdom is organized around one principle. Moreover, he loves righteousness. 
Now, uh, the fifth thing, Christ's integrity, is beyond all question. Many a power seeker has sworn to uphold the constitution of the country, which he has uh, arrived in. Power, but not so of Christ. The authority under which he governs is upheld by the personal his personal integrity. The zone is one of righteousness, and he loves righteousness. In other words, our president is to uphold our country by the Constitution. We go by our Constitution. That's where we get our governing body. But Jesus Christ does not rule that way. He rules because of his righteousness. He can do no wrong. He don't need a Constitution to go by. He is the ruler of righteousness. Christ's spiritual attitude comes next. God, even thy God, has anointed thee, verse 9. Now, God's anointing added a spiritual dimension to the ministry or task for which a man was called. Moses anointed Aaron. Samuel anointed David. Elijah anointed Elisha. Now, notice a priest, a prince, a prophet, each anointed for his office and each anointed by another man. But... Jesus has been anointed by God. There's no higher anointing than that. When Jesus was on earth, he was anointed so that he might redeem. Now he is anointed so that he might reign. Also, Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness. Once Jesus was the man of sorrows when he was on this earth. But now he is leaping with joy upon his throne. What a Savior. What a King. What a throne. So, uh, when you think about Jesus and you think of all his aspects of his life right now, it, the Bible says very plainly that he is reigning right now in gladness. Now, we are to think not only of the glory of Christ's person, but also of the glory of Christ's power. It was Jesus who had founded the earth and fashioned the heavens. Verse 10, And thou, Lord, in the beginning has laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of thy hands. The hardest for my human mind to conceive is nothing. Think about that. Absolutely nothing. No earth, no sun, no moon, no star, no animals, no nothing. But Jesus before that. I can't conceive that. I try. I believe it because the Bible says it. Amen. But I can't conceive it. And this verse makes it very plain that we look at all of this that we call earth and heaven and stars and things, how glorious it is. But then God makes it very plain that Jesus' power is beyond any of this. He was before any of this. Before any man or anything else. His power is greater. Verse 10 says, And thou, Lord, in the beginning, hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. Can you imagine that? Uh, I, I said this one time. I asked uh, a saved man we were discussing, and he was in great theology discussion, you know what I mean. And I said, Who made the Grand Canyon? He said, Well, the Lord did. I said, No, he didn't. Babe of Blue Ox was dragging the axe and drew a canyon down. Did you read history in school? 
En dat mijn naam heet hem zo, maar die kunnen niet meer horen En vanavond, ik wil niet vergeten, ik over de Grand Canyon, coming home from Montana. And looking down in that great canyon, and it made me think that God one day just took his thumb and made the Grand Canyon. You think about all of that, you know, and, and all the things, the oceans and everything. And God said, let there be the Atlantic, let there be a Pacific, let there be this, let there be that, and let there be the great mountains that we have. And Jesus is the one that did that. And so, uh, how could you compare, and this is what Hebrews is trying to tell these Jewish believers that has been born again now, but they're wanting to drift back into Judaism and worship with the temple and the temple images and things. And he's coming along and correcting them in their worship service. He said, how can you compare something that God has made with the one that made it? You cannot. Why? You take a pot, piece of clay, and put it on a wheel the Bible says, and he molds that like he wants it. And how can that pot say to the maker, I don't like myself the way I made it? He had no right to do that. Only the maker has the right to do that in the power. So how are you going to wor- worship the pot instead of the pot maker? And that's what he's talking about. And Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness. Now notice verse 10. Uh, Christ has power to launch into space more world than man can count. Uh, you know one of the most discussed things among preachers sometimes when they get sitting around talking to this preacher? I used to go to uh, preachers meeting every Monday morning. We'd have breakfast and there'd be about 20 preachers in the Brandon and Tampa area meet down here. And we would discuss. And they would get into some of the craziest discussions uh, just asking stupid questions as far as I'm concerned. And, and, and they would be talking about some of these things. I wonder, is there another world out there? I don't care if there is or not. I mean, I believe God can make another one if He wanted to. And He can make one better than this one. Amen? But what I ask every one of them, who did Jesus come in this world to save? He came in this world to save me and you sinners. Amen? Now, that's far enough for me. I don't have to worry about Martians coming. Uh, but if, if Jesus wanted to make one out there, He can sure do it. Amen. He has the power to do it. And so, uh, Jesus has great power. We're to think of the glory of Christ's permanence. Now, although the suns and stars and space perish, Jesus will remain unchanged. I like what Barry, I think it was Barry telling me he was witnessing to a guy... He said, how are you going to die and go to hell and burn forever and ever? He said, have you ever looked up at the sun? sun been burning forever. Amen. Ever since God made it. Well, that's, that's a good expression and good uh, analogy. But at the same time, uh, when you think about permanence, that sun can burn up and one day it will. The Bible says so. And and, uh, and the moon and the stars and everything gonna fall out of their space and and so on. But when you think about Christ, He's permanent. You can't take Him away. Can't do away with it. Now, motion produces friction. Friction produces wear. Wear produces disintegration. The whole material universe is like some vast clock flowing, running down. 
our sun is burning out at the rate of 4,200,000 tons of heat every second without any direct catastrophe intervention from on high all things will eventually fold in upon themselves because stars and universe have their life cycle astronomers have photographed the rubble and debris of stars that have exploded and vanished from the sky I got that out of my book I read that now scientists come up with that stuff well good night you can look around and see things deteriorating all the time amen there is nothing ever been made on this face of this earth except Jesus It doesn't deteriorate. And what we've got to understand is, He don't deteriorate. Amen. Verse 11. They shall perish, but thou remain. And they shall all wax old as good as the garment. And the vesture shall thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same and the years shall not fail. That's why I love the Lord so much and I mean this, He doesn't change. Now, I change and I sin and I get away from the Lord. He's right there all the time. He don't run. He don't leave. As somebody says, well, the Lord left me. No, He didn't. You left the Lord. But He didn't leave. He's the same. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. He'll be right there where He said He's going to be. Amen. Now, what a contrast with the decay and the obsolete of Judaism, which was the Hebrew converts had made uh, their way everything there was temporary, preliminary. And, and these Hebrew believers had found that the Christ, the Son, the deadless, the ageless, the chainless Son of God, He was to be worshipped, not the things that He made. And then, lastly, we are to consider the glory of Christ's position. Verse 13. But the which of the angels saith he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Are they all not ministry spirits sent forth to minister to them who shall be heirs of salvation? No angel has ever been invited to share God's throne. Satan the only one who tried to grasp that throne was hurled out of heaven. Angels, even the greatest and mightiest of them, are the servants of those whom Christ redeems. Christ is superior to His majesty as the Son of God. This truth expressed by God is exemplified in the Word. He is God the Son without fear in the universe. Therefore, uh, there follows in chapter 2, now watch verse 1. Watch the word therefore. Now everything that he's been teaching us in chapter 1 about the Son being superior, therefore, because of this, we are to give them more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angel was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience proceeded just against reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by them that heard him? God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Now, here's what it's getting to. 
There followed in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, the first of the Hebrew warnings of passage. It is a warning against regarding God's salvation. He said, now because of all this and superiority of Christ and who Christ is, you better be careful. And it's like uh, uh, in those days, and what is the analogy is this, a ship is sailing across the sea. And he's coming to a safe harbor. And he said, be careful that you don't slip right on by it. Like they sail right on by the safe harbor in a storm. Be careful of that. Don't neglect so great salvation. Because there is no other. Amen. I, I hope you get what... That's the reason I love the book of Hebrews. Because I learned in the book of Romans when I first got saved how great God's grace is in saving. But then Hebrews comes along and he's explaining that grace to us. And he's explaining how God done it. And it's a wonderful book. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, bless your people today. We're excited about the whole service. We ask you, dear God, that many would be here. Somebody get saved today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.